week three of a series that we obviously began two weeks ago, if I do my math correct there, um, a series uh, through the book of Hebrews. If you go on, if you haven't been around, you go on and you, you click on the podcast of the last couple weeks, uh, you will hear me speaking uh, at a pace that, that you may not even be able to keep up with. I, I was so excited to launch this series, been chomping at the bit for over a year, and, and I think I just... Uh, uh, got, got lost in the moment of the last two weeks such that I began to stumble over my own thoughts and words in excitement. I'm still there this morning, but we're going to slow down the pace just a little bit as we dive in. The, the title of this series as we work through the book of Hebrews is Jesus is Greater, which is the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews. Um, if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, you'll know that the book itself is incredible. It's a literary masterpiece, but it also helps us to see how the entirety of Scripture is a literary work of art in its fullness. One beautifully interwoven, overarching story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the entire thing. Um, The book of Hebrews is unique in a number of ways. We've talked about this the last couple weeks. For one, it explains the relationship uh, between the old covenant that God made with Israel and the new covenant established in Jesus' blood uh, in greater detail than any other book of the Bible. The book of Hebrews unpacks the humanity of Jesus in a way that no other book of the Bible does, uh, including the explanation of why Jesus had to be fully human and the fact that Jesus faced temptation just like you and me. Um, The book of Hebrews, and we'll talk about this this morning in greater detail, presents us with warnings that remind us that the Christian life is not a life of easy believism, that present tense perseverance in the faith authenticates one's past tense profession of faith. At its heart, uh, the book of Hebrews is a word of exhortation. The author of Hebrews himself says this toward the end of the book. Chapter 13, verse 22, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. It's a warning, the book of Hebrews is. It's an appeal, which is why you have that language, bear with. Warnings punctuate the entire book. They shape the doctrinal teaching of the book. Uh, We're going to encounter the first of those warnings this morning as we dive into chapter 2. The book of Hebrews is not a book that declares the supremacy of Jesus that just happens to have a few warnings sprinkled in along the way for good measure. The warnings are at the very heart of the book. They're meant to spur us on to keep fighting the good fight of faith, to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. In other words... The warnings are not just for those within the Christian population who are not really followers of Jesus at all. Rather, the warnings are also God's grace in helping Christ followers persevere in the faith. The first wilderness generation of Israel, if you go back to the Old Testament, they they were uh, brought out of Egypt and baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. Yet we know that uh, only a couple of those in that first wilderness generation actually entered the promised land. Many failed to trust God and did not enter into his rest. If you take that wilderness language and you apply it to the church in our day and age, Jesus has inaugurated a new wilderness wandering for a new covenant people, you and me, who are on pilgrimage and will be brought into his eternal rest. But some of those who are part of the the visible gathering of God's people will not enter that rest. And because we haven't crossed the finish line yet, the author of Hebrews warns us of the urgency to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus That Jesus is greater than the prophets and the angels, all of the human and divine messengers who've come before him. He's greater than fallen man. He's greater than Moses and Aaron. We'll see that when we get to chapter 3. He's the greater and ultimate high priest. He mediates a greater covenant. 
He offers a greater sacrifice himself in a greater tabernacle, namely heaven. We're going to see all of that as we work our way through this book of the Bible. But the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews is this. As an exalted, resurrected high priest, and this is good news, Jesus now ministers for the church in heavenly places. So if you're the church, that's you. This book is meant to to sober us on the one hand and, and yet also bring us great comfort and joy. And so that's my prayer for us this morning, that we would find ourselves sobered as we open up God's word together and that we would also find ourselves comforted and overjoyed in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so it's with that being said that if you have a Bible, you can open up to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This will be a little briefer sermon this morning, which is good news based on the weather forecast. I did not plan that, but it just so happened to work out that way. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. You can take that Bible as the church's gift to you if you don't own a Bible or the translation that you do happen to own is difficult to understand. Uh, let me do this. Let me just pray for us and, and we'll jump in and we'll, we'll get to work. God, I think I've said it week in and week out the last couple weeks. I'm so grateful for not just the fact that you have divinely revealed yourself to us in the scriptures, but I'm grateful particularly for the book of Hebrews. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful work. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful revelation of who you are and who you are for us in Christ. And so I pray this morning uh, that, that we, the church, would find ourselves sobered by these verses a little bit uncomfortable, but not in a way that causes us to navel gaze, but rather in a way that causes us to, to fix our eyes yet again on you, Jesus, and your cross and everything that you have accomplished for us, that we would find ourselves basking in the gospel this morning yet again. Holy Spirit, would you move, would you stir in our hearts as we open up your word together? It's in the name of the risen, exalted high priest of heaven, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So the unwavering declaration of chapter 1, if you were here, you know this. It's evident. Jesus is greater. For two weeks now, I've attempted to put Jesus on display in all of his goodness, glory, and grace. And the reason I've done that is because that's what the author of Hebrews does. Chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the visible revelation of God's splendor and majesty. That's verse 3 of chapter 1. He's the exact imprint of God's nature, God made visible, chapter 1, verse 3. He's the creator of all things, pre-existent deity who was around long before the manger scene in Bethlehem, chapter 1, verse 2. He's the sustainer of all things, upholding and governing the universe by the word of his power. That's chapter 1, verse 3. He's the ultimate high priest who made purification for, uh, for our sins through the sacrifice of himself on our behalf. The one who put an end to the bloodshed of the sacrificial system through the shedding of his own blood. The one who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as a declarative, it is finished. That's chapter 1 verse 4. He's the rightful heir of all things as our sin-conquering, death-conquering, Satan-conquering, triumphant king. That's chapter 1 verse 2. He's the revelation of God, the final and ultimate revelation of God. God's ultimate message to mankind. That's chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And finally, he's superior to the angels in name, honor, vocation, existence, and status. That's chapter 1, verse 4 through 14. We looked at that in great detail last week. And so now, as we move into chapter 2, 
we get a glimpse of the heart behind this putting of Jesus on display in chapter 1 in all of his goodness, glory, and grace. And more specifically, we get the heart behind why there's this need to show Jesus' superiority to the angels. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, okay, let me just stop there. And you're like, are we really going to get out of here on time? Yes, we are. Anytime you see that word, therefore, It's a bridge from where we've come to where we're going. It's not something to just be glanced over. Um, It's because Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Because Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Because Jesus is the preexistent creator of all things. Because Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Because Jesus made purification for sin through the shedding of his blood. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high because Jesus is rightful heir of all things because Jesus is God's ultimate and final message to mankind because Jesus is superior to the angels therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift from it for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What the author of Hebrews is saying is this, and and it's really not super complicated, which is why I think we will get out of here in a timely manner this morning. He's saying this. He's saying, the previous forms of divine revelation proved to be reliable. That, that goes back to, to verse 2 of this morning's passage. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, where we began this thing a couple weeks ago, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets that everything the prophets said, which was communicated to them by angels, turned out to be true. That angels functioned as mediators of the giving of God's law. Which is why, if you look at Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 53, this is Stephen's speech before he's stoned to death as the first Christian martyr in the New Testament. He says this to the Jewish crowd. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law, listen to this, as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Angels were the the mediators of the giving of God's law at Mount Sinai. Those who transgressed the law in the Old Testament, those who were disobedient to the law, faced the consequences of God's judgment. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is, if Jesus is better than angels... Going back to last week, going back to chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, and we neglect him, the one to whom the law was pointing in the first place, then we do so to our own peril. And then he goes on to articulate in verses 3 and 4 the the reliability of this gospel message that we're not to neglect. He says, it was declared by the Lord Jesus himself, that's sufficient evidence, verse 3, He says, you heard the gospel proclaimed by those who heard Jesus with their own ears, verse 3. He says, you saw the miraculous works that accompanied the gospel message that was declared to you. That's verse 4. 
And he says, you saw the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit testifying to the authenticity of this gospel of Jesus Christ. Also verse 4. And so what he's essentially saying is if there's no reason to doubt the reliability of what God spoke through the prophets by way of angelic mediators, then there's no reason to doubt the reliability of what God has spoken to us by his son. Going back to chapter 1, verse 2. In other words, you could simplify these four verses as this. Jesus demands and deserves to be heard. Don't neglect Jesus. To do so is to your own destruction, the author of Hebrews is arguing. Um, he, he essentially communicates a concern that his Christ-professing audience might drift away. This is not an issue of rejecting salvation. It's a, an issue of neglecting what you've heard. Okay, That's critical. That phrase, drift away, in the original Greek, it has nautical overtones. Um, immediately, a number of word pictures come to mind for me, and you maybe can come up with some of your own. Um, when I was a kid, uh, we used to go down to the panhandle, uh, to the beach for a week every summer. And I remember, and many of you, maybe you, you did this as a kid, maybe you do it as an adult, and that's cool if this is you, but uh, I used to lay down uh, in knee-deep water and just let, let the waves carry me, just kind of tumble just kind of tumbled myself down the beach. And, and I remember it didn't take long, only a matter of minutes, and I would look up, and all of a sudden my condo is 300 yards away. It happens like that, right? And all of a sudden you have to, you have, to have a reset, directionally speaking. You get up, you run down the beach 300 yards, you do it all over again. But, but the question is, how is it that, that we find ourselves off course in those moments as kids? And I would argue that, simply speaking, it's by taking our eyes off of the condo off of the beach house. What the author of Hebrews is essentially saying is don't take your eyes off of Jesus. He is the bearing here. To do so is to open a door for the possibility of an inescapable undertow. And it happens so subtly. Or here's another example using water. And I may be taking liberties here because this is not nautical in nature. But uh, when we were at the beach a couple weeks ago, uh, before we would come up for lunch, our daughters wanted to go to the pool. They wanted to swim in the pool, and they would uh, put on their puddle jumpers. You've seen these things. They're like floaties, but they also have like a, uh, a thing that goes across your chest so that you look like Ralphie's you know, younger brother, Randy. You can't move. You're just trying to kind of make your way into the pool and then swim, if you can even call it that as you're wearing this thing. And our daughter, our oldest daughter, Lanier, had taken lessons this summer, and so she kind of learned how to do this thing, and, and she would... Uh, stand at the steps, and I would kind of back my way off in the distance slowly, and then I would say, okay, come to me, baby. And she would start swimming, and, and she would keep her eyes on me. And, and there were moments where uh, someone would jump in and make a splash, and it would kind of carry her off course, and she would look to see where the splash came from, or, or she'd look down, and there was a bug floating in the water, and it would catch her attention. And then all of a sudden, she'd find herself panicking a little bit because she had lost her, her bearing but, but there were other moments when she wouldn't do that. Yes, a, a wave would come from some kid jumping in and making a splash, or there would be a bug there, but she'd keep her eyes on Daddy, and she'd continue to make progress, and she would eventually find her way to me. Again, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. He is your bearing in life, Christian. Maintain eye contact with the superior Son of God, which is why chapter 1 is so critical. Don't stop seeing and savoring him. Or maybe another example, and I think it's fair to call this a nautical one because it actually has happened in the ocean for me. Um, 
You ever been fishing before and you dropped your anchor in the ocean or in the flats maybe? Um, my father-in-law and I, we go fishing for trout and redfish sometime in the, in the flats of the panhandle. And, and on occasion, he'll drop the anchor. Uh, but at times, based on the current, the anchor is not sufficient. And we'll find ourselves drifting. And, and eventually, we have to crank up the motor based on the fact that we look out. And all of a sudden, that, that buoy that was like 100 yards to our right is now left of us. And we realize that we've, we've gone off course. And, and we have to make our way back to the starting point again. I think, I think it's fair to argue that in a passage like Hebrews chapter one verses, uh, Hebrews chapter two verses one through four, that that Jesus using this nautical language is both our bearing and our anchor, that he's the only anchor sufficient to keep us from drifting. To abandon Christ, our anchor is to be swept away. I bring up all all those examples because I think they help to make sense of two things that are happening in the book of Hebrews. Number one. The original audience of this letter was being pressured to abandon Christianity. Um, in other words, they were facing the waves of persecution. They needed to be reminded of Christ, their anchor. But secondly, the author of Hebrews doesn't just want us to be secure in Christ, our anchor. He spends the entirety of chapter 1 putting on display Christ, our treasure, our bearing. It's not only about our being secure in the anchor who is Christ, it's also about not taking our eyes off of Christ, our bearing. It's about seeing and savoring the most valuable being in all of the universe, which he took all of chapter one to articulate so beautifully. Jesus is both our bearing and our anchor. Coming back to to this idea of of drifting, um, I mentioned this just a moment ago, but rarely are we talking about something that happens instantaneously. Gospel drift oftentimes happens very, very subtly. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, he says it this way. He says, There is no friction, no dramatic sense of departure, but when the winds of trouble come, the things of Christ are left far behind, even out of sight. Or C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, If you imagined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. And make no mistake, C.S. Lewis would argue that some can be reasoned out of it by honest argument. One of the greatest apologists of his day. But look at what he goes on to say. He says, do not most people simply drift away. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I think it's critical for us to acknowledge that the audience to whom this letter was written was a real church made up of real people in real danger of drifting. Don't, don't think that you and I don't need to hear these words ourselves. We do, me included. The, the original audience of this letter was being pressured to abandon Christianity from the outside, to revert back to the law, to the priesthood, to the sacrificial system, to the temple, to the old covenant. It's hard for us uh, to comprehensively uh, think in terms of what drifting can look like. How, how do you paint that picture? There's so many possibilities. And so I'm going to lay out some this morning, but let me just preface it with the disclaimer that... This is an imperfect, non-exhaustive list. I'm very excited to see what comes out of our community group dialogues this week and and to hear what what you might add to this list as it pertains to gospel drift. These are just a few things that I would argue can cause us to drift away from the gospel. Number one, moralism. Though we may not be tempted to revert back to the priesthood and the sacrificial system of Judaism, many of us are often tempted to revert back to a life lived 
in the pursuit of God's acceptance, love, and favor. It's prevalent in the Bible Belt. I dare say that, that some of us in this room, if we're honest, are exhausted. Tired of clawing after God's acceptance, God's validation, and God's approval. Here's the good news. The gospel declares that you don't have to live that way, nor do I. The gospel declares that we are accepted and loved perfectly in Jesus Christ. That we can live out of a, a position of acceptance rather than in the pursuit of acceptance, which is a significantly different life lived. If you've drifted into the current of performance, Jesus offers you something so much better. He's accomplished it all on your behalf. That's good news. Second way that we can experience gospel drift alongside moralism is the issue of autonomy. That over the course of time, we can, we can find ourselves embracing the lie that our first parents embraced in the garden so very long ago. You can live a life of self-determination. Instead of God's world and God's word, it can be your world and your word. It's easy to find ourselves taken off course by the current of self-determination, the current of judicial autonomy, you might say. God has spoken to us by his son can so quickly get replaced to I can speak for myself. Thanks, God. If, if moralism is the current that swept away the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, then autonomy is the current that swept away the younger brother. And I want to encourage you to go read that this week and to think about that parable in light of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. A third way that we can experience gospel drift is with respect to issues of identity, that rather than enjoy and rest in the identity that we've been given fully in Jesus Christ, we can find ourselves treading water in a sea of things, a sea of, of people that we're looking to for a sense of worth, career, money, our kids, a significant other maybe, appearance, what we see in the mirror, possessions, and on and on and on we can go. And as these people fail us, as these things fail us, we swim toward the next person, the next thing, to try to find value, worth, a sense of identity. And if enough people, enough things fail us, we begin to feel like we're drowning. For some in this room, if you don't hear anything else I say, please, please, please hear this. You do not have to drift toward anyone and everyone toward anything and everything in the pursuit of value and worth in this world. You do not have to do it. You've been given all the value, all the worth you could ever possibly want or need in Jesus Christ. A fourth way that we can experience gospel drift is as it pertains to the the issue of rescue. We're all looking for solutions to the problems of life. Every one of us without exception. Some of those very same things that we look to for identity are the same things that we look to for rescue. If I just had a little more money to rescue me from my financial distress, if I just had someone to rescue me from my loneliness, and all of a sudden, if you, if you use that nautical language, those people, those things become the lighthouses that we look to in our personal storms. We shift our bearing from the seeing and savoring of Jesus to the, the seeing and savoring of those other rescuers. And let me take it even one step further because I've seen this growing up, particularly in the South. There are a lot of people who have drifted because Jesus failed to write the check for their functional savior. Jesus 
is not a stepping stone to acquiring other lovers. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that you get God to give you that which you want more than him. The gospel is that you get God, period. God's the gift. That's the beauty of chapter one. Look at Jesus. Isn't he supremely valuable and glorious? And here's the good news. He's the only rescuer who cannot and will not fail us. Lastly, and again, you, you could probably come up with dozens more than what I have on this list. But finally, I would mention familiarity. But for some reason, though this is not a biblical understanding of the gospel, the more familiar oftentimes becomes the less impressive. That what was once beautiful about the Christian life becomes bland. That what was once wonder-invoking about Jesus becomes uninspiring to us over the course of time. Just, just familiar enough with the gospel to become inoculated to the gospel. And, and let me be crystal clear here. If you're less impressed with Jesus than you used to be, it is not because Jesus is less impressive than he used to be. It's worth asking the question, if that's you, have I drifted? What do what do we do with a passage like this? I think oftentimes the church fears passages like this. We don't want to go there. We feel like it actually diminishes the beauty of the gospel. In fear, many people quickly run to the question, can, can a person lose his or her salvation? We become navel gazers of sorts. And I think that's an important question. I have every intention of dealing with that question before this series is over. We don't we don't skirt theological issues around here. We, we, we will get there eventually. Um, the beauty is we have a half dozen of these warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And, and I think the latter warnings lend themselves to us diving into that question with great intentionality. But, but I don't think that this morning's passage is the most appropriate place to deal with that question. And, and here's why. It's because chapter 2 is the therefore of chapter 1. The summary of chapter 1, Jesus is the most supremely valuable treasure in all the universe. Therefore, pay attention to him. Don't drift from him. Don't neglect him. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the preexistent creator of all things. He is the one who upholds and governs the universe by the word of his power. He's the one who made purification for sins through the shedding of his own blood. He's the one who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the rightful heir of all things. He's God's ultimate and final message to mankind, and he is superior to the angels. Listen to me. The heartbeat of chapter 2 is not square away your doctrine of apostasy. The heartbeat of chapter 2 is look at and see and savor the beauty of Jesus Christ. Period. And, and let me interject one more thing. Those who would walk away begrudgingly from a passage like this are missing the entire point of all of it. The, the author of Hebrews, think about this. If you were around for, for our walk through chapter 1, think about this. The author of Hebrews is not calling us to begrudging submission in these verses. He's calling us to fix our eyes on rubies and diamonds. He's calling us to fix our eyes on a holiday at sea. He's calling us to bask in the supremely glorious Jesus of chapter 1, of which there is no greater thing to fix our eyes on in the universe. That's the call. 
The sobering effect of chapter 2 is meant to cause us to fix our eyes on the Christ of chapter 1 all the more. How do we keep from drifting? By continuing to see and savor and trust in this supremely valuable son of God. And so that's, that's my hope for our community groups this week coming out of this morning. That we find ourselves talking about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, our treasure, our bearing, our anchor. If you're, if you're not a Christian, though this passage is written to professing Christ followers not to neglect the salvation that's been given them in Jesus, I do think it is imperative to say this, that it's incumbent on all of us, whether you profess to follow Jesus or not, to wrestle with the implications of what the author of Hebrews is saying, to go back to chapter 1 and ask the question, what do I say? What do I believe about this salvation that's been offered me in Jesus Christ. I'm ple- if you're not a Christian, I'm pleading with you to turn to him. He lived the life that you can never live, a perfect sinless life. You don't have to claw after the love of God. He died the death that you and I deserve to die in our place as the bearer of our sins. He rose from the grave, slaying the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death. Cling to him. Even now, in this moment, as you sit in your seat, And declare him to be the only sufficient anchor of the soul. Your soul. Confess him to be a sufficient savior and king this morning. And if you are a Christian. Be thankful for passages like these. God uses them as a means of our persevering in the faith. I mentioned last week. I'm really curious to sit down with Jesus. Over a really, really big cup of coffee. Because I think it will take one that's really big. It's going to need a large. Maybe a venti. I don't know. Um. To ask him all the ways that he used angels to minister to me. Going back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. What was that? What did that look like, Jesus? Um, to, to see him pull back the veil and show me how he cared for me through the angelic host of heaven and his wielding his power and love. But I, I'm also curious to ask him, how did you use passages like Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 in my life? What were those ways that, that you used certain parts of the Bible to sober me in such a way that it caused me to fix my eyes on you yet again? Passages like these should never lead the Christ follower to fear, but they should lead the Christ follower to sobriety, which are two very different things. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A passage like this is not about condemnation. It's not. It's not about fear. We're meant to, however, feel a little bit uncomfortable if you're a Christ follower. We're meant to feel the heaviness that apart from Jesus, we're hopeless. It's meant to drive us to fix our eyes on him. Yet again, going back to last week, I gave the example of my daughter on the beach looking up at the moon and seeing it for the first time, not in a book or on a TV screen, but in real action and and crying out, Daddy, 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 it's the moon. And, and, And then going out the next night on the beach and hearing her all over again, Daddy, 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 it's, it's the moon. I know, baby, we saw it last night. It's nothing new now, right? But it's the moon, daddy. And over and over, and she's still doing it, by the way. Since last Sunday, every time we've been out late at night enough for her to see the moon, all over again, she's infatuated. That's the gospel. It's this call not to drift from your infatuation with something, someone far greater, far superior to the moon, the one who made the moon and holds it in the sky as stage lighting for this divine drama that he entered into, not just as the author, but as a character to live out the life that we can never live and to understand what it means to suffer. 
so that he can come alongside of you in your suffering. It's a beautiful message, really. This warning passage is a cry to see and savor him today and then to wake up tomorrow and see and savor him tomorrow and then the next day and the next day and the next day. And you go, when does that stop? When you die or Jesus returns. Welcome to the Christian life. Maybe you haven't seen it on display very well here in this hyper-church under gospel context that we call the Bible Belt, but it's real. Let me just, let me close with both a warning and a comfort. Let me just bring a little bit of a shepherd's heart here as we close this morning. The warning would be, and we've been talking about this for a couple weeks now, the warning would be for those who have bought into a theology of easy believism. This declaration, I prayed a prayer back in the day, and I meant it, so I'm good to go. I'm just going to coast to my death. I got my ticket to heaven. If that's you, the author of Hebrews would tell you that you are in grave danger. Karen Jobes, scholar on the book of Hebrews, says this. She says, the author of Hebrews, both God himself as the ultimate author and the human author, whoever that may be, want Christians to be warned in terms that do not permit either an easy legalism or a cheap grace. Believers are called to nothing less than living with eyes fixed on Christ from conversion to death. To make a decision for Christ means to adopt an ongoing stance of faith throughout one's life, not just for a momentary utterance. That, all right, think about this. Regardless of your systematic theological view regarding the doctrine of perseverance, the call is one and the same. If you believe you can lose your salvation, what do you do as you leave this place? You keep looking at Jesus. You keep seeing and savoring Jesus. If you believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, what do you do as you leave this place? You persevere by continuing to look at Jesus. You persevere by continuing to see and savor Jesus. But the warning is for those who think that seeing and savoring Jesus in the present just doesn't matter. Here's the word of comfort. And it's for the tenderhearted, for those who should feel sobered, but instead feel afraid coming out of a passage like this. Again, I quote Job's. She says this, Anyone worried about committing the unforgivable sin or becoming apostate hasn't done so. Apostates are by definition hardened to God and arrogant toward what he has said by the Son, Jesus Christ. Such that, if you have any sense of uneasiness as you sit with Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, that's, the spirit, that's evidence that the Spirit is actually at work in your life. That's God on the move. And in addition to those comforting words, I would also add, if you're unsure of where you stand with God as you sit with a passage like this, the best thing that you can do is fix your eyes on that which is sure. And the declaration of this book of the Bible is this. Jesus is sure. The cross is sure. Fix your eyes on Christ and his cross and be comforted in the finality of what has been accomplished for you at Calvary. As John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Left on our own, we all drift from the gospel. The good news is that Jesus died for gospel drifting people like you and me. Praise be to God for that. And as our great high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, we talked about this over the course of the last couple weeks, mind-boggling. 
Jesus, right now, Christian, is praying for you that you would continue in his life-giving gospel. It's unbelievable. We'll unpack more of that in its fullness in the weeks to come. So if that sounds exciting to you, you should stick around. How can we neglect such a great salvation when we know how deeply loved we are by Jesus Christ?